U.S. Cyber Command is on the cusp of big change. The command is set to get a new leader for the first time in five years if the Senate confirms him. And Cybercom is about to get some powerful new budgeting authorities. Here with the latest, Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Tell us more about the nominee. He's had his hearing for Cybercom. What did we learn here, Justin? Yeah, this is Air Force Lieutenant General Timothy Hawk. He's been nominated to have the dual hat role of commander of Cybercom and director of the National Security Agency. Hawk is currently deputy commander at Cybercom, and his career uh, priors are listed with or littered with the word cyber. He was commander at the 16th Air Force, which is their big cyber unit. He was commander uh, Air Force's cyber and commander uh, Joint Force Headquarters Cyber at Joint Base San Antonio-Lackland, Texas. Uh, so he's had some roles in the intelligence community as well. So he's, he's got that resume that would certainly back up being uh, commander of Cybercom. He would replace, of course, his current boss, uh, Army General Paul Nakasone, who has led Cybercom since 2018. It's matured pretty rapidly in those years. It's implemented this new defend forward strategy that came out during the Trump administration and saw Cybercom really uh, become more aggressive in pursuing cyber operations abroad. Nakasone has been there beyond the traditional four-year role. He was asked to stay on an extra year, and now Hawk has been nominated to replace him. Now, notwithstanding the fact that all of these nominations are on hold because of Senator Tuberville, Beyond that, how did the hearing go? What did it look like as the outlook for Hawk's confirmation? Yeah, you know, he, he's gotten through, you know, two confirmation hearings, actually. It was the Senate Armed Services Committee last week to really look at his role as prospective role as Cybercom commander. That went well. N- nothing really holding him up there. Same with the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence confirmation hearing earlier this month to kind of discuss more NSA issues. Of course, Congress is considering uh, reauthorization of the Section 702 surveillance powers. Big, big issue in the national security space. Hawk has been asked about that, but his nomination doesn't really face any sort of uh, issues that are out there at this point, except for that blanket hold in all military nominees. Yeah, well, that's bigger than any two people, I guess, uh, involved there. And these new budget authorities, that's kind of exciting. You know, agencies, you see this happening across the government, different budgeting, even contracting authorities that are carved out by Congress for specific agencies. What's going on with Cybercom? Yeah, this really points to Cybercom's uh, maturation. and, And, you know, it's only 13 years old at this point. And really, it's relied on the military services to budget for cyber cyber forces, for cyber personnel, for cyber capabilities that then feed up into Cybercom. But there was a change more than two years ago in the fiscal 2022 NDAA. Uh, That law says that starting with the 2024 budget, the head of Cybercom will have direct control over the planning, programming, budgeting, and execution of resources that PP. BE process that sounds so bureaucratic, but is so important in the Pentagon, of course, he will have control over that for the cyber mission force. And Hawk said that forthcoming change is really a critical moment in Cybercom's history. And it's one of the things that he's looking forward to the most. Here he is at the Senate Armed Services Committee last week. It allows Cyber Command to set the investment in our training infrastructure, in our training courses, and allows the services to focus on recruiting, initial skills training aligned to our standard 
and then to leverage the retention capabilities that Congress has given to the services. So those are areas now that really change the dynamic of how we will approach cyber readiness if confirmed. And I'm sure contractors are listening to this idea of them having Cybercom having its own PPBE authority. So will that change how they work with industry, do you think? Yeah, Hawk said it's going to really increase Cybercom's, you know, interactions and, and contracting with industry, frankly. Uh, you know, this this also comes as Cybercom is getting its a build out of its acquisition authority and programs over the next five years through 2027. Cybercom will kind of assume the acquisition authority for the cyber warfighting platforms and all the technologies that go into that. And so Hawk was asked about how Cybercom works with commercial industry. And here's what he said. Right now, uh, we do have collaborative relationships with industry and particularly with small business. That's really where the department focused us initially. Now, as we gain our budget control and our acquisition authority, that will allow us to expand how we interact with industry and certainly be able to bring much more resource. That will enable us to operate with more speed and agility aligned with our requirements and, and we're excited about that opportunity. And what else came up at the hearing? And specifically, I'm wondering if the idea of there's kind of a tension built into having one hat or two hats on one person overseeing the NSA and the Cybercom. Yeah, this has really been the perpetual question since Cybercom really came into existence is, do you, do you eventually split up the the command of Cybercom and the, the lead of the NSA? Um you know, Hawk said he supports the results of a recent study that was led by the former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, retired Marine Corps General Joseph Dunford. And that study essentially said that there are substantial benefits to retaining the existing structure. Uh, Hawk said that he thinks that's the case going forward as he gets set to assume both of those roles. What it reflects is really a maturation of U.S. Cyber Command and, and that relationship and operational partnership with the National Security Agency being in the best interests of the nation. In reality, the signals intelligence and the cyber environments are overlapping. So having a single leader with the ability to align the capabilities of, of NSA and Cyber Command gives us greater speed and agility. It also allows us to, at the beginning of planning, be very considerate of how do we protect intelligence sources while still being able to position to produce the outcomes the nation needs us to have. Yeah, it's a complicated question because you have the NSA on the one hand, which is just intelligence gathering, and you have Cybercom, which can zap people if the need calls. So we'll see how that goes. But again, the Tuberville is on, so it's all kind of academic until that issue is resolved. That's right. I don't think uh, Hawk or any other prospective military leader is going to move any time going forward while that issue gets sorted out. Federal News Network's Justin Doubleday. Thanks so much. You got it, Tom. Check out his story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American 
Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure is mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role, even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's, it's, it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, and I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know that I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They're the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that we rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have, we rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them 
and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast division. They are the ones that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, <laughs> d- describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I, I trust God even in this situation as a union leader, because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came, do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. it's, It's needed uh, and, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the Deep South, you know, you, you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice, that whole approach, because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, Integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I, I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE, and its membership, and where we were four or five years ago, and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever 
you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother, you know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, right, as I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.